Till I wake up in the morning Every ding dong ring You go a marching to the table You see the same old thing Baby, all I wanna tell you A knife, a fork, and a pan And if you say a thing about it You're in trouble with a man Let the midnight special Shine a light on me Let the midnight special Shine its ever-loving light on me Yes, let the midnight special You would have heard that Harry Belafonte, musician, act and long-time civil rights activist, has died. 96. He bankrolled numerous initiatives to bring civil rights to black Americans in the 60s, campaigned against poverty, apartheid. He organised the all-star charity record We Are the World, raising more than $63 million for famine relief. Uh, a star in every way, wasn't he, Sarah? Absolutely embodied using power with principle. Mm, yeah. yeah uh, he criticised Jay-Z and Beyonce on 20, in 2012 for having turned their back on social responsibility. Mm. Give me Bruce Springsteen and now you're talking, he said. And this song here was from Belafonte's 1962 album Midnight Special and the harmonica player had just signed with Columbia and this was his first bit of studio work. Let's raise the, the music up a little. Here we go. So that harmonica player was fairly well known. That's his first paid gig. Do you know his name? Liam? No idea. Sarah? No. Bob Dylan. <gasps> wow. First recording right there. You're on the panel, RNZ National. A lot of feedback about um, etiquette in uh, offices. Wallace, I'm working next to my colleague right now listening to you. I can't have meaningful chats whilst working because you're too distracting. We're architectural designers. We we chat on breaks. Opposite my old job in a tailor's, of course we can work and have music, radio, or podcast. It depends on the job, Melissa. Well, Melissa, uh, on that note... Don't turn off the panel. Stay with us. You're too important. And my boss had a desk lamp, which if on, no one could approach her. That's so smart. That could be a little tip for you, Liam and Palmerston North. Well, I tried that if- once, and my secretary <laughs> told me to do something so pretentious. <laughs> Fair enough, too. Fair enough, too. And someone else says, um, if I may, I'm... I'm so interested in what uh, Sarah Sparks is wearing, it sounds incredible. Is it possible if I see what she's wearing? Would you mind if we put the fo- a photo of you on the website? Am I absolutely fine. Happy to. You can take a photo of me too if you want. Uh, and I'd like to say too, okay. uh, um, thanks to uh, Two Squirrels uh, in Dunedin. That's where I got, I found this taonga that I'm wearing. It's just, it's just amazing. I'd, just like amazing. To, I'd like to thank the Tommy Hilfiger outlet store in Tower for. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's enough. You're good on you, Liam. Thank you. Thank you. It's 4:37. The panel RNZ National. The financial penalties for companies breaking privacy laws are woeful, says our next guest. Latitude Financial had a mega data breach in March, the biggest in Australia's history. 7.9 million customer records, including a million driver's license numbers and identity documents. They're an Aussie company, but New Zealand customers are caught up in the breach too through 
Kiwi Bank. Australia lifted their penalties after a massive Optus breach last year. New Zealand, no such moves. With us to discuss is privacy lawyer Catherine Dalzell. Kia ora, Catherine. Oh, kia ora. Great to be talking with you. Pleasure. What penalties do we have in place under our Privacy Act to deal with companies who break privacy laws? Where is the teeth? Um, I think I might be use, it might be useful for me to say that there is a difference between penalties and damages. Okay. So penalties is a punishment. It's something that the regulator has to punish somebody for a privacy breach, and that is separate to damages, which is what you and I might claim for the humiliation and distress that we have suffered as a result of that. So we're talking um, penalties, Good. punishment, damages. Okay, so what is ours? Uh, you're sitting down because it's huge. It's, it's, look, Google must lose sleep every night, knowing that if they breach the law in New Zealand, a, a penalty is $10,000. A tenner? It's, it's $10,000, yes. Yes, yes, ten k. Uh, and in Australia? Uh, $50 million. You are yeah. kidding me, Catherine. No, European Union, um, uh, it is between $10 million and $20 million, depending on the size of the breach. Wow. That would shock a lot of people listening, Sarah. It's nothing. Yeah, obviously there's got to be some uh, legislation change, but I'm also interested in the the digital identity uh, trust framework. So there's a move around that, but it's not compulsory either. So in this age where obviously data is king and becoming more and more of value, there needs to be a duty of care, a greater duty of care, wouldn't you think? Absolutely, and we're wanting to encourage it uh, as well, and that's where these penalties sort of sit. Now, we're in an interesting position in New Zealand, and both Europe and Australia have also done uh, tried different ways of accounting for the um, for the breach. So, for example, in, in um, Europe, they will look at um, it's 10 million euro or two percent of a firm's annual revenue. Re- re- annual revenue. I've got to stop drinking at lunchtime. Um, but 10 million uh, or two percent of a firm's annual revenue. And I quite like that because we are a country of small to medium enterprise. And and when we're looking at punishment, we're not looking at destroying. So um, I don't know about you, but if I got a cheque for $10 million, or well, that would be the end of my business. It would so, be significant. Um, and 10K, Liam here, not a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, really? What's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I got an email from Latitude about being, you know, potentially compromised. I think we've got like a couch or, or something that we're paying yeah. off. And like it was like, you know, it was really annoying. And, you know, p- apart from the fact that, you know, somebody now has information about how much I owe on a couch. You know, it's just all the identity theft risks, yes. risks that goes with it. Um, my question for Catherine is, uh, is there, you know, uh, other countries do have these good comprehensive punitive um, regimes. Um, you know, I think Australia, you, you, they can be fined up to three times the benefit that they've um, sort of received. Um, is there any yep. evidence that that's sort of spurring uh, companies or firms to be more cautious, to have better systems, to upgrade mm-hmm. themselves, given that we're talking about an Australian firm um, sort of to begin with? Um, I, we haven't got evidence of that in Australia yet because this is new, but we have got evidence from the European Union that the impact of the penalties is making a difference to the way that uh-huh. uh, uh, that, that companies are responding to their data obligations. These penalties are having an impact. Now, and you're not alone uh, in this thinking, Catherine. The Office of the Privacy Commission says fines, well, they're a missing tool from their toolbox, and they've tried to raise it in the past. Why hasn't it changed? Well, it was interesting. 
interesting when our 2020 Act came in because Parliament seemed really wedded to meeting recommendations by the New Zealand Law Commission back in 2012. Well, Technology and things have changed since there, including a major analysis of privacy um, by the, um, uh, which resulted in the um, uh, GDPR, um, uh, which is a, a European Union regulation. And uh, and one of them were these sorts of penalties, but Parliament just seemed to be wedded back to 2012 for some reason. Not quite sure why. There were plenty of us making submissions saying, yeah, no, let's, up, let's update that a little bit. Yeah, really interesting topic, Catherine. I hope we can uh, come back to this, see if there's any movement uh, on this issue. But for now, that's uh, Catherine Dalzell, privacy lawyer. Uh, a lot of responses are coming through regarding whether or not uh, wearing headphones and listening to podcasts, wellness podcasts, uh, or um, music is productive. Uh, Jen, where I work, the radio is always on. I wear headphones and usually listen to RNZ. If I couldn't wear headphones and was subjected to the repetitive, inane rubbish that everyone else seems to love, I'd be forced to leave a job I otherwise enjoy. Jen, you stay listening to the panel. That's all I can say. Welcome. Keep those headphones on. It's 17 away from five of the panel. Now imagine you're walking along the Wellington waterfront, breeze through the hair, and an unimpeded, unobstructed view of the beautiful Wellington Harbour. Whatever height you are, because there are no barriers, people can sit on the edge of the harbour, as they do in Wellington, enjoying their lunch or a vape. Freedom. But nine deaths from people falling on the harbour since 2006? Is it time for barriers? Uh, With us is playwright Dave Armstrong. He joins us. Kia ora, Dave. Kia ora, Wallace. How are you? I'm extremely well, thank you. And, of course, this uh, has um, been made uh, a bit of a recent issue as well, eh, with another uh, very recent death. Um, yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. What, sad. Absolutely, Dave. What made you want to weigh in on this debate? Well, uh, well, partly, to be honest, you know, when it first was talked about, I think I was, I was talking to someone, you know, six weeks ago, and I was a bit on the fence. I didn't really know. I, I like the harbour like it is. I quite like the open spaces. But I am sort of aware of um, the, the safety issues. And since writing the column, people have sort of said to me, yeah, you, you, we agree with you. Try taking a toddler down there. I've known times where, I mean, I even know of a dog obedience class that was held and the owner stood on the, the waterfront and the dog, you know, they practiced the dog coming to you and the dog kept going right up into the water. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's not as safe as you think. And uh, so I think with what I what I also found out is that experts had recommended some barriers, not everywhere, but in the, uh. in the big places. And you know, yet again, we've had streetlights falling down, and the council said, "Oh, it's no, yeah, not a problem, only a thousand. And it worked out that it was a really big, you know, really big issue. And I just think that if people are saying, "Look, it's pretty dangerous," you know, it should be investigated. And to be fair, the, the mayor and the council are looking at it, and I, I think some action will be taken. But right. I've heard no one. I've heard very few people say fence the whole thing. They're saying put up some protective barriers um, where there are a lot of people. And if people are wandering home, let's face it, some of them drunk at night. You know, you don't want them having misadventure. And according to people that work at the harbour, they, you know, we hear about the deaths, but there've been a lot of people that just slip in or that. Fall yeah, in. no, I know so, the Wellington waterfront and beautiful yeah. as well. Uh, a, te- a, te- a text here, Dave. Drunk people on a Friday night also walk into traffic. 
Oh, true. And, and I mean, I, I, I said that in a column. It's not, you can't just make everything, you know, padded. You can't make life easy for everyone. So if something goes wrong, and there's, there's a total argument that says, you know, um, people shouldn't be drunk or they shouldn't walk into traffic too. And, and I, I, but, but, you know, there are safety things that even though might, someone might be in the wrong, it saves lives. Dave, yeah, Dave, and, yeah nine deaths is a lot, right? I mean, you know, mm, thinking yeah. about that, yeah. that's nine families who have lost irreplaceable people. I, mean, yeah. I, I love the Wellington Waterfront too, but now that this has come up, I sort of think about my youngest two kids and nothing mm. stops them. I mean, they would just run on the road as it is. Um, Dave, why, 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 uh, why has nothing been done? You'd think in this sort of, we're so conscious about health and safety in so many areas. Why is such an obvious hazard not been addressed? Well, it has been addressed by the council and experts. It's just no one's done anything about it. Uh, I think it was 2016 a report was, you know, quite clearly that, yes, more should be done. They did do some things. They put on, I think they put on, um, you know, life uh, rings and, and stuff to throw in. If someone falls down, I think they put some signs. I'm not sure exactly what they did, but they did do some things. But in true Wellington style, it wasn't a lot. I think the money is a cost uh, is a, a would be an issue, but there have been three councillors from quite different um, political colours, if you like, an ex Green, a Labour councillor, and a, a Conservative councillor, and they've all come out saying something has to be done. So I'm suspecting something will. Sarah, there are actually, there are actually temporary barriers up. Right, um, I saw on Monday. Uh, that I didn't realise near Ferg's kayaks, for people that will know, oh. I shed six. That's near the uh, events. It's the narrowest part of the waterfront. A lot of the waterfront, you know, uh, area is very wide. That's the narrowest. And they have thousands of people at concerts. I want to bring in uh, the other, uh, our other um, uh, uh, guest, Sarah. I was going to say, you know, Tori, she makes the things happen. She is a doer. So I would believe that there will be plans underway. It's great that you've put light on it because I agree with Liam. You know, nine whanau yeah. is nine too many. Uh, and I've always got concerned myself uh, when I walk around at how open it is. Uh, not only with young ones, but also, you know, I'm a mother of a 20-year-old who goes out on a Friday, Saturday night, and it it affects us all, and the people have spoken. So hold the faith, have have the trust. (laughs) Yeah, and I I won't ride my bike around there so quite as fast as I do, because, you know, I'd hate someone to fall in. Is there another way to do it there? I mean, the thing about it is that that's what makes it so beautiful because it it looks like the Wellington Harbour, it looks like a big infinity pool, you know? Can you not put, put, instead of having a um, fence, can you not put nets over the water? So, (laughs) uh, you know, because you've got that infinity pool look. It's beautiful. David. Yeah, it is beautiful, but I don't. I'm. I'm not like no one really is saying, uh, including the mayor, is saying you know fence the whole lot so it's like a cage. Most people are saying look at the real push areas, and that mm. one I mentioned uh, near Shed Six is one of them. Um, and really, really try and put a little bit. Like I say, there's there's, uh, there's a temporary fence there now, and no one's raised any problem. There's no Dave, problem. You're it. getting a bit of pushback. For 40 years, I lived in Wellington and walked the waterfront with my children. This is woke nonsense. Yeah. <laughs>
Use your brains. Stop cancelling the stop cancelling the the Harvard, Dave. Forty <laughs> years, forty years work, walking there, Dave, and still alive to oh, text look, me. Yep, and those two and a half year olds, their own fault if they've fallen. I, I'm, I'm waiting for that text. Too. Pre- prevention look, yeah. is better than the cure, right? right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I, and as I say, it's not woke nonsense. It's a compromise, <laughs> and I think you can do reasonable things, and you can, yeah. you know, you can go go crazy. Um, I, I spent my whole childhood, you know, in jungle gyms where I fell on my head and, and uh, uh, you know, didn't have padding. <laughs> you know, I, I may not be a good example for, 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 for not having padding. We'll leave it there, Dave. Thank you. Uh, it's 10 to 5. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Now, time to talk about the worst weed in the world. It's not what you think. It's called alligator weed. It's been an Aotearoa for over 100 years, but just contained to Northland. Now it's spreading south, causing huge problems for kumara growers, apparently. But perhaps a bigger problem, our weeds are becoming resistant. To explain, Trevor James, scientist at Ag Research. Trevor, Kiora, great to have you on. Thank you. I was fascinated about the worst weed in the world. That caught our attention, so we're talking about that this afternoon. What is alligator weed? Alligator weed is primarily an aquatic weed invading waterways all around the world, and it just simply clogs them up. It's very prolific uh, in its growth. But more recently, it started to invade riparian and arable areas as well. So if it's moved from an aquatic area as a rhizome or a a fragment of the stem, it can grow in pastures and crops anywhere. And we are beginning to find it in very odd places. The most recent one, of course, is in Hawke's Bay. Wow, yeah. A hundred years here. Um, Why is it so simpatico with our environment? What makes it do so well here? Lack of natural enemies, probably. There has been a biocontrol uh, introduced, but we think it's just slightly too cold for it. And there's no other pathogens that we have in New Zealand that seem to attack it. So Gosh. it does very well, like a lot of other weeds. Yeah, uh, and we are a nation of weeds, Sarah Spars. Did you know this? What's your question? What about the alligator weed beetle? Does that... Does it, yeah. I know that it's been used in pilot programs and also around working with Matsuranga Māori solutions that Tangata Whenua Yes, may. it's starting to have some impact way up north in, in Northland, uh, particularly over water. But we are finding that it is not moving into the terrestrial growth of alligator weed, unfortunately. Liam? I have to say, you know, my mind went to the worst place too when I saw this. I was thinking, you know, Gator Ganja or Crocodile Chronic or something like that. You know, like the worst weed in the world. Thanks for the thanks for the tip, Wallace. Um, look, look, I, I mean, um, my pleasure. It's not that um, it's, it's not well known in New Zealand, is it? No. I mean, I talked to people about it um, when I saw the topic, and no one had heard of it. I texted my yeah. mum, and she said, "Yeah, I've heard of it." And I said, "Where?" That's she said, why we're talking on about it. That's why we're talking about it on the panel. But it's been there for a hundred years, you know. Yeah. So why has it under, been under the radar for Good so long? Good question, Trevor. Mm. Well, if you talk to people from Northland, they will claim that they've been neglected for years, but we won't get there because that's a political football. It's simply that there's so many other things that attract our attention. And we, as a 
said, we are a nation of weeds. We are a young country, mm. so we know what's been introduced, and it's easy to identify a weed and separate it from the vegetation that was there before. But there are so many of them, and who is really concerned about it? Farmers, growers, some environmentalists, um, and that's it. Yeah. So what's the next step uh, in terms of this century-old problem, Trevor? What is the next stage for this the worst weed in the world being alligator weed? Well, the first thing is we want to find out as much information as we can from locals. There's lots of people have been dealing with it for 100 years, if there's anyone that old, and there's a lot of information there. How do they live with it? How do they cope with it? What's the best solution? The first thing is, Jack, to go to the people that have it and say, well, how are you dealing with it? Can we improve on this? Is this the best method? And then there's a, an information campaign of which this is obviously part of to draw people's awareness to it because alligator weed has a huge underground root system Gosh. and that is the problem. It's very difficult to control and therefore once it wow. gets established, you've got a problem and we want to highlight that and have people identify it before it gets established it's, or well established. It sounds like a shocker, Trevor. Thank you for being on the panel and uh, highlighting this. That's okay. Thank you very much for the opportunity. That is Trevor James, scientist at Ag Research. Sounds like a monster weed, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, alligator weed. Have you come into contact with it? Email me, the panel at rnz.co. Uh, .nz. We are with Sarah Sparks this afternoon, also Liam here. Well, the most watched host in America leaves Fox in a shock announcement. His name is Tucker Carlson. Here he is on Jacinda Ardern. She, of course, earned the admiration of Western leaders, including former CIA director Michael Hayden, by ushering in an era of near totalitarianism in New Zealand. She shut down the entire country over a single COVID case. She told everyone to stay in their bubbles. She told citizens to inform on their neighbors by calling the police if they saw them outside. That is Tucker Carlson on Fox on Jacinda Ardern. Um, you are trying... You're breathing deeply, Sarah. Well, he's had a karmic fall from grace, has he not? It's a a, a Wananga 101 of what not to do in the media. Well, he might just have become a liability Rupert Murdoch. He has decried a so-called crisis of manliness, airing a special that promoted using tanning therapy on testicles. Uh, The New York Times wrote last year, Mr Carlson has constructed what may be the most racist show in the history of cable news and also, by some measures, the most successful. So I want to go around the panel and and ask, what do you make of Tucker Carlson and his exit. Liam? Well, I mean, they have this fragmented media market in New Zealand, uh, sorry, in the United States, which we don't have here, where you can get rich by just, you know, uh, being as populous to a small segment as possible. I mean, the the, the ratings he had were, were really big in terms of, um, you know, news ratings, but it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination, you know, a wide swath of the country. It's just that you can make heaps of money in America by appealing to a you know, a, a, a minority, an angry minority. I, I guess, I mean, I mean uh, frustrating because I actually kind of think that the, I can understand it, but I, can, I think that the way that we 
obsess over the minutiae of American media here in the in New Zealand is is just kind of diminishing a little bit. Well, let's I mean, bring Sarah in. Sarah, what's your take? Uh, well, it's dishonest media, you know, and it's prime, and it had a comeuppance. Uh, Fox with the settlement and the lawsuit, it, it was going to happen. Uh, it concerns me, you know, it doesn't matter what jurisdiction here in, in Aotearoa or the US, if you're in the media, you have a responsibility because, you know, members of the public do listen to the narrative and they can get swayed and unless they're critical thinkers, you know, but some people get swayed. And I and the mob mentality and what happened in the States, particularly with what happened at Capitol Hill, sliced straight at the heart of the Constitution there. All right. Very good. You're a great panel today. Sarah Sparks, Liam here. And Friday show, Tucker said, see you again Monday. Well, I'm Wallace Chapman. This has been the panel. I'll see you again tomorrow, 3.45. Till then, Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next.